Uh, so today, I want to start out by taking us back. I got to move back. I go, oh, it's like I'm in a cage. Whew. Um, I want to take, is this better? Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I want to take us back. The year would be 2007, and it would be a cool but yet still oddly warm and crisp spring evening in Dallas, Texas. As you stood outside and you could feel the breeze kind of picking up, you could feel the atmosphere become a little physically thicker. You could feel things starting to swirl in the air and you could just sense something was stirring, something was moving. And yet standing in the corner all by themselves was this 17-year-old teenage kid. And as they stand in this corner, there's tons of people all around them and there's worship songs happening and there's everything going on, everything changing, it feels like. You can hear the worship songs ringing all around. You can sense and, and hear the, the prayer languages and the language of prayer being dancing through the air of the house. But yet, there the 17-year-old was all by themselves, standing in the corner. And the 17-year-old was seeking, desiring, and hoping for something different this night. Sitting there as, as still as they could, sitting there trying to block out all the distractions, something that is incredibly difficult for a 17-year-old, but one with ADHD especially and everybody else around them. They're trying to keep up with life that is busier than Chicago traffic at 5 o'clock on a Tuesday. And yet, as they stand in the corner, this day, this moment, time stood still. It almost felt and sensed like nothing was moving at all. Because in that moment, everyone else around them, a radical encounter with God happened for the 17-year-old. And God, he... He speaks to the 17-year-old teenager in the corner, and he doesn't speak, though, in the worship songs. He doesn't speak in the prayers. He's not moving in the busyness. No, no, no. God is speaking. God is moving in the quiet solitude of the heart of a 17-year-old kid standing all alone in a corner. Oftentimes, when I say the word solitude, for many of us, our mind automatically goes to a one or many different places possibly. For me, when I thought about solitude, I think I have to be all alone. There can be nobody else around me, no distractions, no noise, no busyness, no chaos. And to be honest with you, when I think of solitude, it brings a little bit of anxiety for my ADHD-ness. Because that means for me, I think solitude, and it means I have to be still. And that's really difficult. And when we have been looking at these spiritual disciplines, I believe solitude and the discipline of solitude is probably one, if not the most neglected one. We get so caught up in, in our busyness of life, our chaos of life. And we feel as though if I try to take a moment of solitude to be with God, I'm going to miss out on something. But what if, what if solitude is is a furnace for transformation in our life? 
What if solitude truly is a furnace of transformation, a place where transformation not just happens, but is ignited and is burned to a, a passionate flame in our lives? What if solitude and regular rhythm and obs- observance of solitude, what if that will bring more transformation in our life than more meetings? What if a regular rhythm and a regular practice of solitude will, bring, will allow us to be more faithful to the things God has called us to in our life rather than skipping family time to do one more thing? And what if the regular rhythm of solitude and observing it, what if that could bring us closer and more into a deeper intimate relationship with Jesus than any seminar or podcast or sermon that you could ever hear? What if, and I truly believe this, what if solitude truly is the furnace for transformation of our lives? You can read through this book, you can read through the Bible, and there's, there's many stories of regular practice of solitude. You get, you get Moses in the OT in, in the Old Testament going up to the mountaintop, getting the Ten Commandments. You, you saw him practice solitude often. You also see the prophet of Elijah practicing solitude. Let's not forget about my man Paul, before he starts his ministry, practices the practice of solitude. And Jesus models solitude very often. We're going to kind of look at some of the, the stories, two specific ones of Jesus in this practice of solitude. One of them is, is one that we've talked about a little bit already. It's going to be found in Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you or if you have your phone with you, go on and get that queued up. And uh, we're going to dive into that in a moment. And as Jesus, as we talk about solitude, we have to understand that it is a furnace. It is a place of an ignition of a passionate fire to go from where we are to be somewhere radically different. When you think about Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, we start to remember, and for most of us, we remember what happens here. We remember that Mark uh, opens up with John the Baptist preparing the way we remember that John is, is baptizing people and then Jesus shows up and, and John is very hesitant to baptize Jesus. And he's like, no, you must baptize me. And Jesus comes to him and he says, no, no, I must be baptized by you. And then it picks up. I want to go in verse nine. Uh, this is what it says. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven that said, you are, dearly, uh, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, but yet the angels took care of him. This text, this moment, Jesus gets baptized, and it's this holy, glorious moment. You can almost visually see the painting, the picture of Jesus comes up out of the water. The heavens open up. The bright, glowing uh, voice booming of God comes down. This is my son whom I dearly loved and am well pleased with. And the dove descends upon him. And then in some translations, it says immediately. Immediately, Jesus is led into the wilderness. There's not a moment of pausing. There's not a moment of changing clothes. Jesus more than likely comes out of the water, huge celebration, and then we're going off into the wilderness. Soaking wet, squishy sandals. 
And he goes to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. You know what's in the wilderness? Satan, wild animals, insects, bugs, huge spiders, snakes. Do we understand that as Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's going into a place of of solitude, but he is also going into a place that he is filled and surrounded by temptation and distractions all around him. And we know what happens as Satan tries to tempt him and, and kind of ask him these questions and tries and tries and tries again to get Jesus to bow to him, to, to do different things, to act out of, his, out of the godly divine will of God. And yet what happens is Jesus lets the word of God, lets scripture flow from his mouth. See, what was so intriguing is that when I think of the story of baptism and then immediately afterwards, the wilderness is, is we understand that the water came, the water, the word came over Jesus. God's voice came over Jesus. But then in the wilderness, the word of God came out of him. The word must not only flow over you, we must not only hear it and listen to it, but it also must make its way inside of you. We've talked about that with study and meditation. If the word is not inside of us, what will come out when we face trials and temptations is not the things of God, but rather the things of the world. And how do we get to a place where we truly allow the word of God to radically transform us? I I truly believe it's not just... Uh, you know, one or two of these studies and, and disciplines, I believe, I believe it's when we put them all together and we work hard at doing that. And the study of solitude, the, the discipline of solitude is the furnace where things burn and are ignited inside of our spirits and solidified. So think about that. As Jesus leaves the crowd, leaves the baptism, goes into the wilderness, he's demonstrating a regular rhythm of solitude or retreating from the people and it fueled his ministry and his ability to hear God's voice amidst the chaos of our daily lives. I don't know whose kids those are, but (laughs) those most definitely are mine. Um, Sorry. In the wilderness though, like I said, there's animals, there's distractions all around. But yet, but yet, Jesus observes the moments of solitude. It was key for him. It was a key part for his whole entire ministry. And just a few short chapters later, flip over to Mark chapter six with me. And a few short chapters later, we see Jesus do this exact same thing. Uh, Verses 45 through 46. This is the moment that as we dig into these two verses, we, we remember that right before this happens, Jesus is standing there. And he has a crowd of 5,000 people. And the disciples come to him and say, the people are hungry, Jesus. You need to feed them. And I love Jesus' response. What do you mean I need? You feed them. You go get Jimmy John's or something. You feed them. Figure it out. And they're like, we only have this much food. And he's like, all right, bring it here. And we all know the rest of the story, right? He multiplies it and everybody gets fed. And then look at what happens in verses 45 and 46, though. Immediately after this, immediately after this, immediately after feeding the multitude, after feeding the thousands, 
Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. Well, he sent the people home. So he sends his disciples away and he says, I'll send them home. You just get in the boat. Okay? 46. And after telling everyone goodbye, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. Jesus sends his whole entire, all of his disciples away. He says goodbye to the crowds. And then he goes up to the mountaintops by himself. Think about this for one minute here. It's intriguing as Jesus does this, this is a regular practice of solitude for us. We see Jesus practicing solitude here. We see Jesus going by himself away from the chaos, away from the busyness, away from all of the noise of the world to sit and be with the Father. To sit and be. And if you were to continue reading in verse 47, it says this. Late that night, the disciples are in the boat in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on land. So, when we think about this, the timeline, Jesus feeds the multitude, sends his disciples away. It's, it's still daylight, right? And then he goes up into the mountaintop. He goes up into the hill. He's alone in solitude. And then the next verse says, late that night. Some translations say like in the middle of the night, but late that night. There was an extended period of time where Jesus spent alone in solitude. And we have to understand that this was not a just checkbox that he did. This was not just something that he was like, oh, I should probably do this. This might be a good idea. This is a regular rhythm of solitude. Regularly observed it, regularly practiced it. It's it's important for us to remember that Jesus loved the multitude. He loved the multitude. He loved the 5,000. He even loved his disciples deeply. But he was never obsessed with them. He loved them, but he wasn't obsessed with them. See, because a day full of ministry, a day full of busy work ministering to the people, what did it do is it drove Jesus to go to solitude. It drove him to prayer, not kept him away from it. Can we just call it what it is? Uh, For many of us, myself included, after a full day of work, a full day of church ministry, a full day of whatever it is, For me, most of the time, I'm just going to be very honest. I'm not driven to solitude. I'm driven to Netflix on the couch with some snackity snacks. Y'all feel me? Like, I'm not driven to go into a prayer closet always. I'm driven to sit down and watch my Netflix show and just not do anything. And I think that's the majority of us. After a full day of work, a full day of all this stuff, we, instead of seek to go be with the Father, we seek to go and binge watch our favorite show. Instead of seek to go sit with the Father, we seek to say, you know what, I just don't have the time to be alone. I got so much I still got to do. Instead of we seeking to be with the Father, we sit there and we say, you know what, I can't get away from this. My family's all around, everybody's all around, I can't escape. And there's also the reality that for many of us, we say, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know how to find solitude. 
as you read the story of Jesus, you'll discover that this is a regular pr- practice and rhythm in his life. Over and over and over again, you see Jesus regularly going into a place of solitude. He's regularly retreating away from the crowds, retreating away from people to be with him, with his father, to be with the presence of God. So much so that in John 17, probably one of the most pressure-filled situations of Jesus' life. It's after the Last Supper. It's after he washes the disciples' feet. It's after they break bread and they drink the wine and they, Jesus takes his disciples and then he takes his closest three and he walks a little deeper into the garden and he tells them to sit, to pray, and to be on watch. And then he leaves them to go be with himself, but with the Father in prayer. This isn't the first time that Jesus understood submitting to the Father's will through solitude. This isn't the first time that Jesus left everybody else to find the presence of God. This isn't the first time that that Jesus seeks his Father through the practice of solitude. But I think in our daily lives, our fear of being alone alone drives us to noise and chaos. Our fear of being alone drives us to crowds and people. We keep a constant stream of words. This is what Richard Foster says in his book. We keep a constant stream of words even if they are null and void. We buy radios that strap to our wrists or fit over our ears so that if no one else is around, at least we are not Condemned to silence. Sitting in silence and solitude for some of us is the most difficult thing in our lives. T.S. Eliot, he analyzes our culture in this way. He says, where shall the world be found? Where will the word of God resound? Not here. There is not enough silence. Loneliness or clatter are not our only alternatives, though. We can cultivate an inner solitude and silence that sets us free from loneliness and fear. Loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. Don't miss that last line by Richard Foster here. Loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. Solitude is the furnace for transformation in our lives. It's the igniting of our lives to be filled with his presence. And silence and solitude were often linked for Jesus and his disciples. And in contrast, right now, the average person speaks 7,000 words per day, roughly. And that is not counting anything you put on social media. Think about that. 7,000 words per day. We are so consumed with the busyness and chaos of life that we can't even sit in silence for a few minutes. We can't even sit in solitude for a few moments. I heard it said once that if you are lonely when you are alone in solitude, you are in bad company. When Jesus went away to be alone, he was never truly alone. He was with the Father and the Spirit. When we seek to find solitude and seek to go to God in solitude, we are not alone as well. Another way of processing this, this is, um, I, I, John said it when uh, we were discussing sermons. He's the pastor at Center Church and he shared this and he said, he said, silence is when we seek to sit with God, but solitude is when God sits with us. 
Silence is when we seek to sit with God, but solitude is when God sits with us. See, without solitude, we remain victims of our society's cultural norms, and we continue to be tied to illusions of how we should live and what our life should look like. A false self. I think there's a big dilemma for many of us, though. Many of us have a lot of excuses to avoid this, myself included. Myself included. I don't know how to observe solitude because I'm too distracted. I got too much going on. I got too much, too many things happening. My to-do list is far too long. I don't have the time to observe solitude even. Kyle, if I observe solitude, that means I'm going to be less productive and less successful, and that means I might not get the promotion later on down the road. So I can't observe solitude. can't observe taking time alone with God. I think there might even be a deeper reason, though, for many of us. And this is one that I deeply actually resonated with. I think that we're scared of observing the discipline of solitude because we are actually afraid. We are afraid that if we get close with God, we might find out he doesn't like us. If we get close with God, we might find out he doesn't like us. Being a pastor, I hear it a lot of times when I talk to people of like, well, Kyle, like, you're Jesus, you're God, sounds really cool, but like, I've done some really bad stuff. I'm really messed up. I fight a lot, I argue a lot, I get in trouble a lot. Your God can't love me. I'm too far gone. See, over and over and over again, I think that for many of us, we are scared that if we actually sit and allow God to sit with us, we are afraid that he might not actually like us. Go back to that 17-year-old kid standing in the corner in Dallas, Texas in 2007. 17-year-old, and he's standing there on a a mission trip at a house that is a missionary's house. This house is filled with college students and college missionaries all around, surrounded. And God met this young teenager in a crowded room in solitude, For this 17-year-old, that is where God was. This moment and encounter with God would radically shape and radically start to define and ignite a burning passion within that 17-year-old. I still remember that night. I still remember the night standing in Dallas, Texas at Stand USA House on that evening with 25 of my closest friends all around me. And I remember standing in a corner, literally looking directly into the corner. And I remember deeply desiring, deeply hoping and praying that God would just meet me there. My life was turned upside down. I was searching. I was wandering. I was, I was just seeking God in so desperate of ways that at this moment in this time, standing in this corner, as worship songs were, were being sung and prayer was being done, I remember standing there and it just went quiet. I knew everybody else was around. I knew the prayer was still happening. I could, the, the worship songs were still going. But for me in that corner, 
there was only one sound that was being heard. It was the sound of, of God speaking direct truth to my heart, speaking directly to my spirit, calling out exactly what I was terrified of, calling out exactly where I was struggling, saying, I hear you, I see you, I, I value you, my son. I remember feeling his presence in that moment on that night like I've never felt before. In the middle of everyone, I've never felt so close and so intimately alone with my, my creator than in that moment. You see, that day, I, I was terrified that when I got close to God, he wouldn't actually like me. I was messed up. I had wrong ideas and everything else in between. I remember standing there thinking, there's no way God could like me. And you want to know what was intriguing to me? I didn't think God did like me. I don't think he does like me. I don't think God likes me. I, I actually think God radically, deeply, and passionately loves me so much that he's willing to die for me. I don't think God likes me. I think he loves me. And I think there's a big difference we're so scared that he might not like us, but we have to wrestle with the truth that God loves us. You don't have to like something to love it. And I think that's a truth that I deeply resonate with at 17 years old that night. I remember closely and intimately that God doesn't like, like me, but the cross says he deeply and passionately loves me. That night was a night that radically was transformative for me. And it was a night that was filled with distractions all around, but yet solitude could happen even in the midst of the crowds. Solitude, solitude for people can happen sitting all alone in nature, waiting for the right deer to pass by, and you're just encountering and speaking with God. But that same type of solitude can happen in a crowded worship center or a crowded uh, Walmart or Meyer. That same solitude can happen in quiet study moments, but that same solitude can happen at a busy restaurant table. Solitude can happen in every single moment of our lives if we would just say, God, would you just sit with me? I'll listen. Would you just sit with me? As Josh comes up, I, I want to set the, the table for something for us today. I want to ask a question is how might God be asking you to sit in solitude with him? How might God be asking you to come to him and say, God, I have no agenda. I don't even have expectations. I just simply want you to sit with me. I want you to sit with me in my life. I want you to sit with me in my situation, my circumstances. And I just want to be. And I don't think it's just as easy as, I'm not going to strip this down and be like, oh, you just got to sit and be quiet. I don't think that's the, the case. I think it's setting in intentional time. Intentional time to say, God, would you sit with me? And can I just sit with you? For some of us, it's a quiet room in our house. For others of us, that solitude might be on 
every single Tuesday at this time, at, at this Starbucks, at, at this table. This is my solitude time. It can happen even on a, a, a plane flight as you're flying for somewhere for your job or maybe it's driving to work tomorrow. If we truly believe that solitude is a furnace for transformation, that means that it can happen anywhere and everywhere. For me, my solitude is not at home. I have four kids, four years and old, four years old and under right now. I have two four-year-olds, a one-year-old and a six-week-old. There is no quiet happening at my house right now. You understand? Not even at night. Solitude isn't happening for me at my house. Solitude is happening for me in my drive to work. Solitude is happening for me as I'm driving from one meeting to another. Solitude is happening for me as I just even sometimes pull into my garage and just sit for two more minutes knowing that when I open that door, the hurricane of chaos is coming. Solitude can happen anywhere. My furnace for transformation it's been in the quiet times, the alone times that I've had with God driving with me in my car. And it has been some of the most fruitful and beneficial times for me in my life. So this is what we're going to do. <clears throat> for the next couple seconds, maybe a minute here, I just want to invite you to sit and to just ask God to sit with you. To just sit with no expectations, no agenda, and just even say like, God, whatever you want to say or do in these next few moments here, they're yours. I'm going to sit with you. Would you sit with me? And would you just allow him to just pour over you in your life? Would you allow him to speak his truth over you? And would you just receive it? For some of us, we need to sit with God as we're struggling with relationships right now. God, I just want to invite you to sit at the table with me right here, right now, as I wrestle with this relationship. My wife and I, we've been fighting nonstop. Would you just sit with me and give me guidance of what to do, how to walk in this, and how to just come to a place where we can find you in this? God, I don't know how to parent my child. They're difficult. They're... they're They've, they've walked away. They're gone astray. I don't know how to parent my child. I don't know how to parent my toddler. Would you give me your wisdom and discernment for how to walk with them so that I don't absolutely go insane? God, I'm struggling with believing that you are a good God because everything in my life says otherwise right now. Could you just reveal your heart once again to me? Could I just soak in your presence once again, Lord? Could you just fill me with your glory with your hope, with your presence and your love like I've never felt before. And for others of us, I, maybe we're sitting here today, maybe we're watching online. You're sitting here and you're like, dude, I've been seeking and searching for someone and something to give me just, just hope. Would you just sit with him today? The hope of the world, he has a name. His name is Jesus. And he wants to meet you exactly where you are, exactly how you've come, all messed up and broken and dirty. And he wants to say, my child, my son, my daughter, I love you deeply. And there is hope for you. 
Take my hand and follow me. Just sit in these next few moments and let him lead you to a place of just deep encounter with him. Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that you are you are moving. We know that you are doing something that only you can do. As I even just listen to the, the gentle breeze of the leaves being tossed around right now, Lord, I, I, I truly know that you are you are a mighty rushing wind, but yet you are a cool breeze, Lord, that also refreshes and revitalizes us. Even in the humid moment right now, Lord, your breeze is sweeping over us. I believe your spirit is sweeping over us to bring us to a place of deeper intimacy with you. Father, I, I ask that you would just take us away, that you would move us to a place to experience you in a deeper way today. That you would truly give us solitude. For some of us, that might be at a dinner table later on. For others of us, that might be in the car ride driving to get dinner tonight. And for others of us, Lord, that might be just sitting at work right now. Seeking you. Lord, as we desire to sit with you in silence, we also ask that you would come sit with us in solitude. That as all the distractions of the world, the chaos of the world, the busyness of the world is removed, Lord, that your presence, your word, your truth your love and your grace and your mercy would be revealed in new, refreshing, and holy and glorious ways. Lord, bring us deeper than we've ever been before. Reveal us, reveal things to us in our lives that we've never seen before. And God, we just ask that you continue to just blow us deeper into your presence, move us deeper into your spirit. And that we will just cling on to you and hold tightly on to you. God, this is our prayer that we would experience you in radical new ways. That you would meet us in the midst of chaos, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of everything going on in our lives. That you would meet us with a personal, intimate, and raw and real love that only you can give us. So Lord, bring us there. We ask. We ask this in your name. Amen.